This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The recent back and forth over NAFTA between the United States and Mexico belies how close our countries actually are economically. In fact, despite that division, it appears that we may be even getting closer. A new book looks at that relationship. It is titled Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. The author is Andrew Seeley, president of the Migration Policy Institute, as well as a former executive vice president of the Woodrow Wilson Center. And it's a pleasure to have Andrew joining us on the show right now. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you, sir. So all of this back and forth over the last several months, what impact do you think it really has had or has not had? Well, you know, I I, I think it is, um, yeah, the, the story I tell in the book is, is, is a story that I think is happening, which is, you know, we are getting closer to New Mexico and the U.S., and most of that's going on outside of government. You know, it's, it's going on in the tech industry and in border communities and in the film industry and, and in all sorts of manufacturing. I mean, there's all sorts of great things going on. But I think in the political side, um, the noise that we have in politics is, is beginning to have an effect. And, you know, some of the policy disagreements around immigration and around NAFTA, you know, do, do have the ability to, to pull us apart. I, I don't think it'll stop the relationships that have been built on the ground and the things we're doing together, but I think it, it changes the tenor about how people in each country feel about the other, and, and that matters in the long term. You mentioned a couple of sectors, one that traditionally has been talked about as, as very important between the United States and Canada has been the auto sector. And, and obviously uh, there are a variety of, of impact points on both sides uh, of the border uh, where the auto sector is concerned, production of, of vehicles down there uh, in Mexico, uh, GM just announcing that they're going to make their new Chevy Blazer uh, in Mexico. So is is the auto sector, with all of these other elements kind of factored in, is it still one of the, the most crucial ones to have to look at when you're talking about the relationship of these two countries? It, it really is. I mean, and, and the auto sector is the backbone of, of American industry, you know, many important areas, but it really is a huge part, both in terms of number of workers and in terms of, of the value of production. But one of the things, you know, that, that I say in the book is that you, you can't find a car anymore in the United States that isn't made in the three countries of NAFTA, that isn't made in the United States, Mexico, and Canada. And the reason is that we really have an integrated manufacturing platform among the three countries. You know, most goods... Um, are now made in really integrated processes across the three countries. And you can still find a few things that are that are just made in one or the other. But but increasingly you have workers in all three countries that are actually doing things together over time. And you know, we we talk about we keep talking about American manufacturing, but the real question is, you know, we to be competitive, we became a North American platform. Right. And it made us really competitive. I mean, we, we actually, you know, one of the things we, we worried about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was foreign cars taking over, imported cars were going to take over. There aren't a lot of imported cars in the United States anymore. I mean, almost all the foreign car manufacturers make their cars in North America, and mostly in the United States, but with a lot of parts coming from sourced from Mexico and Canada. And, and it's actually a, a pretty big success story in the end. Uh, you do spend part of the uh, the book talking about the migration issue, which obviously is something that's uh, drawing a lot of uh, media attention right now. How significant of an issue is it right now between Mexico and the United States? It's a big issue, um, but it is it's an issue you know that's bigger in 
in symbolic terms probably than than in pulling us apart directly but but obviously has a huge impact in in the lives of, of the people involved there are fewer and fewer mexicans that actually try and cross the border illegally there's still a lot of mexicans that come legally to the united states through visas um but but even the, the mexican-born population in the u.s is fairly stable right now the number of undocumented mexicans is dropping and has been dropping for for about 10 or 12 years so the the most people coming across the border these days are Central Americans, and then you have people who overstay visas who tend to be more Asian than Latin American, though you get a bit of everything. Um, the, the the wave of Mexican immigration seems to be over, which which surprises most of us. I mean, I follow this for a while. We keep waiting for you know as the U.S. economy improves. We keep waiting for Mexicans to start coming back again, but it hasn't happened. Um, most Mexicans are choosing to stay in Mexico, and Mexicans living here are choosing to go back, which is, is surprising. Um, but the, the politics of immigration has become so divisive between, you know, in the United States and between the two countries. And so, yeah. you know, the, the, the idea of trying to deport people who've lived for 20 or 30 years in the United States is something that, that Mexicans worry about, particularly if they have family that fit in that category. There's real disagreements about how to handle the Central American flows. Um, Mexico has been deporting a lot of the Central Americans themselves, almost as many as the United States has. But in the end, it is, you know, that that rubs against the, the vein, rubs against the the desires of many people in Mexico who, who've experienced migration in their own families. And, and, right. and so there's a real tension there about how to manage the border and, and whether Mexico wants to become the front line of defense for immigration for the United States or not. You profile uh, a city here in, in Pennsylvania in the book, Hazleton, which is uh, north of, of us here in Philadelphia by an hour and a half, two hours or so. Hazleton's been a city which, which has been at times kind of a, at the heart of this discussion of the impact of Mexico in the United States. There are quite a few uh, Mexicans living in that city. Uh, it has been a political talking point as well. Take us into what that city brings as a dynamic to this whole conversation. You know, Hazleton is a fascinating city, and, and it's a city that was really torn apart by immigration politics back in 2006 when, when it passed the first local ordinances against renting to or hiring anyone who couldn't prove their legal status in the country. And that got overturned by the courts, but it, but it became a hugely divisive issue, and Hazleton became sort of a symbol for, for the immigration debate. It, and it's a city that went through really fast demographic change. I mean, there were Mexicans and then Dominicans that moved in, and, and now the city's almost half Latino. Not all immigrants. A lot of the kids are, are teenagers or American-born. But, but it's gone from being almost all white to being about half, you know, immigrants and children of immigrants in, in the space of two, two, three decades. So a lot of change and a lot of turbulence around that. But it's also a city that's coming out better on the other side and where you see, you know, incredible innovation. You see, you know, new businesses. It was a city that had, you know, largely abandoned downtown area and, and stores had closed. And, and now there are stores everywhere, the restaurants and, and small businesses of all kinds, mostly immigrant-owned. Um, not surprising, immigrants are twice as likely as native-born Americans to to start a business. Yeah. Um, it's something. There seems to be something in the DNA of of uh, the self-selection of people who who cross borders to to want to take risks, and so it it, it it is perhaps not surprising. But but you see this visibly in Hazleton, and you see a city that's really coming back but also is still coming to terms with that really fast change. And then on top of that, I mean, what, what got me to go to Hazleton originally, too, was this uh, this other story. There are now four Mexican-owned factories in Hazleton. Sure, yeah. And so, you know, after this sort of flow of, of people coming from Mexico to the United States, 
you know, you see in Hazleton, what is this new flow in the last 10 years or so of Mexican capital flowing across the border and investing in in companies that hire American workers, you know, that are creating jobs for Americans. And, yeah. and so suddenly you have, you know, Americans working for Mexican companies in a city that once had this huge immigration debate. And you just see how complex all these relationships are. One of the things that will be coming up uh, relatively soon uh, is the fact that uh, Mexico is getting ready to have a presidential election. Uh, and certainly the tension between our current president and their current president has been talked about quite a bit. And I guess the question is whether or not we will see a change in that post-election uh, July moving forward. Yeah, I, I think um, Mexico is going to the it's going to elections on July first, uh, likely to elect a a left-wing candidate, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, um, something of a populist, not unlike Donald Trump in some ways, um, in that he is you know he is a personality more than a man of a party. In the same way Donald Trump took over his, you know, took over the Republican Party against the will of the establishment. Some people love that about him. That's why he got a lot of votes. Some people hate that about him. But it is, you know, it's it's the reality. He took over a political party. Lopez Obrador left his political party and sort of took most of the members with him, the left-wing political party in Mexico, and created his own party in his own image. Right. You know, and, and, and they're similar in that sense. They may get along because they they have some personality traits in common. But then again, they, they're coming from different parts of the political spectrum. And I, and I think that's a, you know, it, it's anyone's guess if this is going to be a, a meeting of minds because they will recognize something in each other or a butting of heads because they see the world so differently. And so, I'm not sure the answer to that. So then what do you see as as the the path that we will see or or not where NAFTA is concerned and the negotiations are concerned in the months to come? You know, the NAFTA negotiations have become really bogged down. Uh, there are two or three issues. The, the U.S. has insisted in um, most uh, parts of cars being made in in the U.S. and Canada. I mean, essentially by saying workers have to make $15 an hour, which which is unlikely to happen in Mexico. Right. Um, rather than trying to see how you could raise wages in Mexico, but sort of putting it out of the realm of that possibility. And once a sunset clause also, so NAFTA could ha- would have to be, you know, re- up to every five years, and, and the Mexicans and Canadians won't go along with that, and then decided to put tariffs on steel and aluminum for Mexico and Canada. Um, the Mexicans found this ironic, by the way, because the, Mexico is actually a net importer of American steel. Not it, It's an area where, where the U.S. is actually really has more steel than Mexico. But but nonetheless, we're sort of in the beginnings of, a, of what looks like a trade war. And so NAFTA has, has negotiated the ground to a halt. Although my latest, the latest news I've heard on this is that they are starting to ramp up again and having some conversations. Right. And I, you know, I think Trump in his heart, President Trump would love to get out of NAFTA. I mean, he campaigned on it. Yep. I think he viscerally doesn't like trade agreements. I think he'd like out of this. But all of his advisors and his cabinet secretaries are telling him that this would be disastrous for the United States. And I think his advisors are right in this. I mean, his agriculture secretary is saying this would be terrible for American farmers, hearing it from governors who depend on the auto industry. You know, this is a lot of his base who's saying, look, we, we, we're we with you on, on getting tough on trade, but please don't pull out of an agreement that actually is a big part of, of how our, our workers live. And, and how our companies survive and, and would be a real disaster if we pulled out. And, and I, I think we may end up with an agreement in the end because of that, because there's just enough 
this is so embedded now in our economy. We yeah. really do have an integrated platform. It would be hard to get out of it. Andrew Seeley, our guest, he is the author of the book Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. President Trump has also talked about the issues uh, surrounding drugs uh, crossing the border uh, coming into the United States. Uh, how significant is that problem? And seemingly, I would figure that it would be one that, that both sides, Mexico and the United States, want to deal with. You know, it, it really is takes two to tango on this one. And, and there's, a, there's a positive story and a not-so-positive story in, in what's happened. The, the you know... Drugs are about, you know, the weak rule of law in Mexico, the drug trade. I mean, the fact that it is easy to, relatively easy to run a drug operation in Mexico and escape the law. It's gotten a little harder, but but it's got harder to be a big invisible group than it used to, which is good. But but there's still a lot of violence in Mexico and a lot of groups that are making money in the drug trade. Yeah. But then it's about demand in the U.S., right? I mean, and, and American consumers who want the drugs, and that's why the cartels exist. And, and the money that, that comes from drug sales in the United States flowing back into Mexico to feed the cartels and the violence. And so it's, you know, it's taken two to tango. There was a real coming together a few years ago on by the two governments to, to figure out how to share intelligence, how to, how to monitor the movements of these organizations, and then begin to, to take them down and disrupt their operations. It, it's a partially good story in that, that most of the big drug cartels are a lot smaller today. There are a lot more cartels, but, but they're smaller groups, and that's good in a sense because they – there's no group big enough to, to challenge the Mexican government or to walk into Dallas, Texas and, and commit murder with impunity. I mean, you know, having smaller groups is good for national security and good for public security on both sides of the border. But in Mexico, the violence continues. Um, it dropped for a while. And, and I'm afraid, I mean, I think two things happened. They, I, I, I think we took our eyes off the ball in both countries and following up on some of this. Yeah. And then heroin popped in and, and synthetic, you know, synthetic opioids, um, some of which are not controlled by Mexican cartels, no, but, but Chinese groups as well, who kind of go through Mexico, but largely use the postal system, actually, um, and couriers, uh, different, whole different drug trade. Um, uh, they get into Mexico, but they actually then go through go through mail and, and courier systems without touching base with the Mexican cartels necessarily. There may be some yeah. agreements, but not. You know, so this suddenly shaken up the drug business. And so three, four years ago, as heroin began to really explode in the United States, you saw the effects in Mexico. Heroin had been a small business for most of the cartels, often very much a side business. And, and suddenly there's this fight underway to control it. And that's been awful in terms of violence. You know, one of the things, and we're talking again with Andrew Seeley, who is the author of the book Vanishing Frontiers, one of the things about the business uh, issues between these two countries, which uh, it has been talked about from time to time, not only is it the big businesses that are involved and the industries that are involved, but in many cases along the border, you see the impact being felt by some of the small businesses, the mom and pop businesses that, uh, you know, may rely at times on people coming from Mexico to the United States for restaurants or, you know, whatever that business might be. And, and there has been a, a, an impact that some of these companies, these operations have been felt, ha, have felt. Even by the violence. Yeah. yeah I mean, well, not even the, I mean, just not even just the violence, but the change in, in mindset and policy, you know, oh, yeah. uh, you know, not yeah. seeing as many people at restaurants or not being able to come to work at restaurants. 
No, that's right. I mean, I, I think this is something border economies really rely on on people coming and going. And, you know, I, I lived in Tijuana and in San Diego at, at different points in the 1990s uh, for many years. Right. And, and people really, particularly on the Mexican side, but also in some parts of San Diego, closer to Mexico, really rely on sort of picking and choosing what they do on each side of the border. So, you know, you buy sure. milk in the United States because it's cheaper. You buy gas in the U.S. because it's cheaper, but you buy eggs in Mexico. I mean, you know, the, they kind of come and go. You know, you choose where to go out for, you know, you go to wine country in Mexico, but if you want to go to the beach, you go to San Diego. I mean, there's this real back and forth. And, and then there's a lot of industries that are really integrated and, and work in real time together. And so anything that cuts that flow, whether it is because the border becomes harder to cross or because – you know, people are afraid of violence or they're afraid or they think that the U.S. is cracking down on, you know, they, or they just don't want to come to the U.S. because they don't like U.S. policies. Any, anything that sort of happens that breaks that flow hits the economies, the local economies on the, on the two sides of the border. And it affects, you know, small businesses much more than big businesses that you can't absorb it. Then how do you see the relationship continuing and building, I, I, I guess, to a degree that the business aspects of this, despite the political, are really going to run the day? You know, I one of my favorite stories in the book is um, is the story of San Diego and Tijuana, partially I lived there, but, but it's also just such a visual story, deciding to, to join forces to have a single airport. Because if you've ever flown into San Diego, San Diego is a tiny airport yeah. in, in downtown San Diego. It's great if you're trying to get downtown San Diego because you're right there, but you can't expand it. You right. know, and, and so for years they were trying to figure out where to build a bigger airport because they really wanted to be a city of innovation and a, and a global city that, you know, you don't have to go up to L.A. every time you want to fly to China, um, you know, or anywhere else in the world. You know, you, you actually have to have a big airport somewhere. And they decided in the end that they were going to build – they were going to use the Tijuana airport. And then the conversations with city leaders on both sides, Tijuana has a giant airport, uh, had flights to Asia, and it's right on the border. And mm-hmm. all you need to do is build a bridge from San Diego into the Tijuana airport, and it becomes a binational airport for the two countries. And it's exactly what they did in the end. So this opened two years ago, two and a half years ago, and it's been used, you know, I think it's four million times actually now. I mean, it, it's incredibly used by people in both countries, um, but primarily in, in San Diego and San Diego to go across and catch flights, you know, into Mexico, but also into other places in Latin America and into Asia. Um, and, and it's this transformative moment where the two cities realize that they are not only sister cities, but in fact, a big metro region. And they start talking about each other as, as being two parts of a big metro region. Right. And and I tell this story because I think it goes to the future. I mean, this, there's, you know, when Donald Trump flew down to inspect his, his models of the border fence in San Diego, the conservative Republican mayor of San Diego, um, who has worked a lot on this relationship with Tijuana, very nicely came out and, and said to reporters, you know, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to meeting the president later today, and I'm going to tell him about all the great things we're doing with Tijuana. You know, and, and it was this sort of sense of he's not criticizing the president who wants to build the wall, but he does want to tell him that we do things differently here. And I think that's the future, right? I mean, I think we can't – the politics of the moment will change on both sides of the border, but, but the reality is there's a lot of really creative things happening in this relationship. And it's happening in local governments and state governments, yeah. especially in the private sector and and in cultural industries. Yeah, and and a lot of times uh, it's the local relationship that drives stuff than than it does at the at more at the national level. I, very much so. I mean, I, and I think that's going on. You know, Hollywood and the Mexican film industry are working together. Yeah. Um, the Silicon Valley and the Mexican tech industry are deeply integrated. I yeah. mean, there's all this stuff that's going on. You know, manufacturing, of course. 
deeply integrated, but all these things are happening that don't depend on the central governments. Yeah. And and I think that's the future. The central, you know, the federal governments in the two countries can can make this better or worse. They can interfere. They can they can do things that make people happier about the relationship, that regulate what happens. But in the end, a lot of this stuff is happening with or without governments. Great having you on the show with us, Andrew. Thank you very much, and uh, all the best to, uh, to you with the book. Thank you so much, and, and thanks for having me on the show today. Thank you. Vanishing Frontiers is the name of the book. Andrew Seeley is uh, the author of it, uh, and uh, great to have him joining us on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 